Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Rasty, who's the founder of Get Rare Properties. And Rasty is one of the most highly educated people we've had on the podcast. He began as an architect, moved into computer science, obtained his master's in computer science, and then left to study finance and ended with an MBA and working as an investment specialist for one of the big four banks. We have a chat to him about how he got started in property and how his financial training and background helps him with his due diligence. Of course, how he grew his portfolio from nothing to $5 million in seven years and the importance of understanding why you're investing in property in the first place and treating it like a business. It's a really illuminating interview with Rasty and I think you'll get something out of it for sure. Here's Rasty. Vivab Rastogi, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much for, for having me here. Now, I must declare I did practice that pronunciation before we went live. Um, your sort of, uh, I guess, go-to nickname is, is Rasty. How close was I and can you, can you run us through it in the, in the proper, perfect pronunciation? Sure, Mike. Now, you have done a great job there. Uh, I'll try to match it now. So it's Vabhav Rastogi with the nickname of Rusty coming from my family name. There you go. We'll stick with Rusty because I think if I did nail it the first time, it was a, it was definitely a fluke. Now, Rusty, um, before we kick off, can you let us know who you are and what you specialize in? Sure. Uh, I am serving as a buyer's agent. I'm an independent buyer's agent helping people buy the right property at the right location at the right price and, more importantly, for the right reasons. And I am a founder of the company by name of Get Rare Properties, whereby Get Rare is more of an acronym for Get Rich and Retire Early. Ah, now I was going to ask you, what is a rare property? I didn't realize it was an acronym, even though it was in capitals. I should have, should have known better. Now, Rasti, what posters were on the bedroom wall growing up? Oh, when I was growing up, I wish I had my own room, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, we, we actually kind of shared a hall and like a couple of rooms within the family. Uh, it wasn't really a big family, but we had lots of guests, um, cousins. Like my, I guess like I had a very good fond memories of my childhood. Uh, if I can think of something on my wall, uh, probably it would be a kite because I was a so much of an avid kite fl- flyer. Like I, I used to even dream of, flying kites in my in my dreams so wow uh, a kite and maybe a, a later on a poster of charlie chaplin and later on oh there you go well and there's two very different influences but yeah that's an interesting one we haven't had any any kite flies before <laughs> what about um what about property how did you first get started in property and what was your first investment so my first okay so my first investment uh, mike if i can share this like I was very young. It was the Diamond Comic series um, as an investment that I made, <laughs> uh, and I, the idea was basically to 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 be able to read some comic books without really putting my own money. So the idea was that if I buy the whole series, I can actually put it on rent in my small makeshift library that I put it out there and in the front of the home itself on the steps. Um, so that was my first investment, and I'm so proud of it. Like at the age of twelve or thirteen, I think I was. Um, Later on, the right, the, I actually bought a property in India, um, in, in, in city near Delhi. 
it was an upcoming estate and uh, it, it it was more of a herd behavior everyone was buying it like we could see how much money was people were making typically the brokers and the builders and uh, that actually got me excited the whole idea of banking on the job that kind of stream of income that i was having then to be able to go to the bank to borrow some money um, just like any typical investors were doing then i, I did the same so so that's how i started um that was in 2004 yeah um 16 years ago but your entrepreneurial journey started as a 12 year old i mean that's very that's very impressive that um sort of makes me want to ask the question about your background obviously um with your fantastic uh name it really beats sort of these western tom smith style names out of the water you um you grew up in india i'm interested in what life was like uh, as a kid and and what was it that you wanted to do apart from kite flying as a kid uh, what i really wanted to do was just spend time with my cousins and friends out there uh, all we used to do was play gully cricket as in gully as in like street cricket over there like with a yep. makeshift bat and the stumps and what not and uh, with my cousins it was more about going on the road trips playing dumb charades flying kites for sure and uh, just having some good laugh um, but coming back to uh, the family it was more about we the lesson that i learned early on was living within the means my mother actually took that challenge of of becoming a second earner of the family to fund our education as a kids and i'm very much grateful to her for for the kind of work ethics that she has actually passed on uh to us and um yeah it was it was fun we never thought really too much about it it was more fun just just going with the flow kind of thing it was only until later stages that we realized that we i mean i have to do something uh to be more responsible for myself as well for my family yeah and i guess there was a a pretty big uh incident in your your family life or in in your life around the age of age of 18 you had to switch directions pretty abruptly so you were working uh, or at least studying as an architect I, I think can you talk us through that part of your life sure so i started as an architecture uh engineering college student uh, idea like i've always liked architecture just because it's a best culmination of human kind in my opinion like as a it's a perfect combination of science and art and also the end result is very tangible asset for for any human out there so so that was a kind of reason why I actually got into architecture college but my father passed away early on and uh, that actually made me think that if i have to establish myself as an architect as a career uh, in that field i have to probably work very hard uh to establish that career before i can start supporting my family financially because yep. back home it takes a while to to be established get that kind of context name out there before we can do something uh significant yeah so, so sorry yeah please continue now all i was saying that that actually made me think what should i be doing instead for me to switch gears uh for growth uh to uh, to to be able to do so and um, and uh, that point of time it as in programming was very much in 
and fashion. Uh, everyone was trying to get in there. There was huge demand. And I got myself a book from library that I started reading, started doing some coding work on my own. And without computer, I actually learned programming. So that was pretty fascinating. <laughs> you learned programming without a computer. Yes. Right. So it's become clear that you're one of these 1% of uh, individuals, the likes of um, which I think we've got our Elon Musk and that sort of thing. Um, because, you, I mean, that doesn't sound like the textbook way. I mean, literally, it is the textbook way, but it's not the textbook way figuratively to learn uh, programming. And you actually got to the point where you studied um, a master's of computer science. So how did you go from a textbook and no computer to studying a master's of computer science? I think, uh, Mike, the way I look at it, it comes down to the why, as in the reason why we are doing what we are doing. Mm-hmm. And because it was very clear what I really want to do and why I want to do it, then every other thing was more of finding the way to get that. So once I got the book on C and C++ later on, how, do I, how, how to go about programming, understanding their concepts, I was actually offered a role um, in, in computer company in, in the same town where I was studying architecture. And that get me that got me going over there. But once I was done with my architecture engineering co- college, which I continued to do, uh, I was offered a role in, in the metro city um, in India. And then later on, I realized that if I'm able to do it just by studying on my own, how would it make as an impact on my take of things or programming or what I was doing as a skill, how, how it will catapult from there if I go for a formal education. And that actually got me uh, to do Master of Computer Science while I was in Singapore. Yeah, wow. So, so the, one of the jobs actually took me to Singapore. And and from Singapore, you ended up moving to Australia in 2006, I believe. How, how did that come about and what made you want to move to Australia? Sure. So... I moved to Singapore in the year 2000, so, well, and I got married in 2004. Uh, so we, as a couple, we stayed there uh, for two years and a bit. And meanwhile, like I was enjoying, we were enjoying our work life over there, uh, the climate, everything. I think it's all relative, like coming from India, like we, we really enjoyed it, the proximity to India, uh, the time zone difference was not really too much. Everything was fine, but I think it was coming to the point whereby we realized that is this the country as a Singapore as a country to continue our life? This is where we would like to retire, or are there any better places? So I'm I'm kind of a person who would always put a challenge to a status quo. Like Singapore happened, but should it really continue? Was the question that we had. And that actually posed a question to us that okay, if if any other country, what country it should be? And of course, like with our way of trying to figure out which country we should be moving in. We evaluated a few factors like the visa, the climate, sports, lifestyle. Like we were very much into sports. Like I I'm, have been a player of squash and later on tennis and was so much into running and stuff like that. So we were told Australia is perfect place for that, uh, that where we can enjoy the lifestyle. So of all the countries that we looked at, Australia came as a winner. So we, we planned our move here in 2006. 
Wow, it's quite an interesting thing to look at your sort of due diligence behind which country you're going to reside in. It's something um, I can't relate to personally, but yeah, very interesting insight. Now, after moving to Australia, you 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 left the the job that you had um, as you moved over. You started a full time MBA in finance, ended up a CFA, landed a job um, as an investment speci- uh, specialist with um, part of the research team for one of the big four banks, managing funds into the billions of dollars. Um, so this is where people are getting even more of an insight into the, the crazy trajectory from street cricket in India to <laughs> to a very high-powered uh, position. Did you feel like you'd sort of made it at that point? I, when I moved to IT, I actually made it then as well. Uh, right. When I moved to Australia, I made it then. When I moved into another dream role, I made it then as well. So. I think it, it's a question of, of of raising the bar all the time. Like if you stop progressing, that's where I feel that we get stagnant. Not to say that we should not be consistent and persistent in what we are doing. I think it was just a different mindset then that like I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the glamour, the glory, and and also the idea of making money multiply for someone as in the corporates and the individuals, high net worth individuals that I was actually managing money for. It was a huge responsibility and I really embraced it and, and took the responsibility. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And the only thing that I, I found missing was that I was actually only serving the top-notch people or the companies out there. My purpose of moving into financial industry after a very uh, successful role or job in IT industry was so that I can make money multiplier for people. When I made it, everything was perfectly fine. It came as a revelation to me that, yes, I'm making money for people in my multi-billion dollar fund management that I was doing, but it's not really touching people in the middle class family whom I can relate to very well from my own personal background. And I realized that I should, or part of me was missing. It was not really congruent to my value system that what I was doing and how directly or indirectly it is impacting the segment of the society that I really wanted to help. It's interesting because you, you talk about, you know, making it, I guess, landing different different careers and getting promotions, I assume. But your idea of, of really making it was was not really necessarily about promotions or, or money. And as a relatively young chap, you came to the view that people really get trapped in the nine to five. And so success to you, I guess, was a little bit about freedom as well. What, how did you sort of come to that realisation and how did that change your direction in life? Sure. Uh, that's an interesting question, and I uh, appreciate that. Uh, uh, I'm a bit philosophical as well in the sense that, like, what is our purpose? Like, why we are here on this planet Earth? And um, and I realized that, like, we have a role uh, as an individual in the, um, in the humanity. But at the same time, we feel that, like, yes, it's more inwards that we have to focus on our wishes and needs and wants. Uh, but then there are some challenges around us that actually get us that actually get us with very limited resource. Sorry, I say it again. Uh, there are so many challenges out there that would actually limit what we can do and what we can't do. 
So for someone in the middle class family, I mean, coming from Indian background where what we have seen is that first as a as young kids, we live for parents, like doing what they're asking us to do. And then we do it for a living, like what we do for work. And then later on, as uh, later on as an adults, we do it for our kids. So question is like, where is I or me in that life cycle there? In in the developed world, what I see is it's a, it's a challenge of the resources of time, energy, and money mm-hmm. uh, that at one stage, it's very hard to get all three together so that we can pursue our own passions and and the likes, the thing that we like, the thing that we want to do, rather than what we have to do. So what I've realized in the middle class family, or even for someone who's doing a proper nine to five job, I always feel that we are so much engaged in our work during the weekdays that we just need a breather over the weekend after doing all the chores. It doesn't really leave as much time and energy to take care of our own interest. So yeah. I'm always a very big fan or passionate about that how we can help or how people can be more i guess um have more control in what they are doing and what they want to do rather than just doing and going with the flow you know i i think that idea that that philosophy is is really the root of why a lot of people get into property investing because they're sort of chasing that notion of the freedom or well they they at least have the idea that that money will allow them to make those choices but we so often get sort of lost in the hot spot or the barbecue conversation that we forget to sort of challenge ourselves on why we're getting into it in the first place and i think that's that's really important and it's um interesting to hear you say that and i do wonder about with this uh this lockdown and the pandemic and things whether people will be will be thinking a little bit more about them uh, about themselves at the moment do you what are your thoughts on that the give for growth property investing podcast is presented by our business mcg quantity surveyors If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. Sorry, my, my thoughts on the lockdown. Sorry, sorry missed yeah, that. Yeah, wh- wh- whether people are going to sort of take a similar introspective view of, of, of what their life is like and what they're sort of living for. I think, you know, the pandemic is a bit of a forced experiment. I, I often think about people that have a terminal illness and then they end up doing all these wonderful things in life that they probably should have done. It would be great to be able to have that motivation to go and chase the dreams without having, you know, the, the terrible health things to go along with it do you think that people will be reassessing their their goals and their life as a result of the pandemic a big time big time Uh, i think what it has given us as an forced opportunity to reflect back on what we are made up of what is our philosophy and what we really want to get out of it i think the families have gone more inwards uh individuals have started thinking more uh introspection has been done um, realizing that the external world is is still external like uh, it has given them that forced time to think about it i would think yeah look i could talk 
philosophy with you all day, Rasty, but we should talk about property. Now, <laughs> for anyone that was worried that we weren't going to, we're going to dive straight into it now with a very interesting story about your first investment in Australia. Now, it was financed essentially via about $90,000 siphon from multiple credit cards. Um, now, I don't feel like this is a textbook move from someone with uh, a background as a investment um, banking expert and a financial analyst, or, or am I just being a little bit uh, scaredy cat? Now, look, if I look back today, uh, I'm scared to death myself. <laughs> that move. So I won't advise to anyone, uh, and I, I feel that I actually went too much into it, but I guess it was all because of the strong conviction that I had and the kind of a risk buffer that I built before that, which, you know, which has been the basis of me doing that. And, and the key thing over there is my partner Rupali was very much of the opinion that like, not only I, I'm aware of what I'm doing, but she was also supportive of what I was doing. So, so the key thing here, what I'm trying to say is that, just don't go by alone, whatever you are doing. Uh, get the family support. <laughs> it's the family who will support you no matter what. If you are going to pinch money from a number of credit cards, make sure you tell your wife about it. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> uh, so, no, so just rest on that, uh, what I was, the other point that I made was that like I had a lot of risk buffers built in there. So I had asset base back home, uh, as in back India, which supported me to go for 90,000 debt on my credit card. So what I mean is that like, if something has gone wrong or have gone pear-shaped, I wouldn't really have thought twice to get my funds from India to pay off that immediately. So, so I, don't, I want to make sure that the audience get the idea that it was not just pinching money uh, without <laughs> yes. having an exit plan there. You weren't just chucking it all on black at the casino. But <laughs> what, did, what did you actually buy and, and what happened? Yeah, so, I, so this... That was actually more of a success story there, uh, this property. So I realized that just just as, uh, taking a step back, I had a job in Westpac, enjoying what I was doing. That was my dream role. And it was a question of like, should we be really buying our first like our own home or should we be going for investment properties? So that was a big question that we had to answer first. But then when we looked at the huge gap between our aspiration as in the, our dream home versus what we can afford was significant. And we realized that the only way to bridge that gap is to take action instead of, you know, talking about where the market is going. And, um, and, and the idea was to basically take some action there. So I started studying about it. I read lots of books, went for so many seminars, took even paid coaching around it, went for many seminars. And the thing that I realized is, that we have to take action of our own finances and investment property, which is not really limiting us to go in our local area. We can go a bit more remote. Uh, and, and that stuck to me as a, as, a, as a great idea that when I'm going for investment, I'm just looking at purely as investment. So what, what I did was basically I went all over, um, went uh, interstate as well to look for the properties as an understand how things are. I actually ended up buying a piece of land in Newcastle then and an architect in me designed the building, got the builder to build it. And within a year, it was ready to be rented out. So we celebrated it. The equity was there um, because of the growth 
not only in the land pricing, but also the market supported it. And I'm talking about 2011, 2012, when it was not really, uh, I mean, market was just turning turning back over there then. Um, yep. And uh, just because we were able to get the equity or uh, the growth was there, that actually supported me uh, with the idea that we should go more into it. Yep. So, of course, yeah. I paid my, the first thing that I did was basically paid my credit card bills, by the way. Yeah, yeah, good. They're not uh, they're not chasing you. You're not going to get uh, caught by Interpol at the airport or anything. You know that that was good timing in Newcastle. I owned a property in Newcastle about the same time, and remember getting a nice little upswing there. So after after that one, I presume you sort of put the credit cards uh, away and and continued on. How did your investing progress from there? It actually only went uphill from there because uh, the the risk of unknown was taken away or was significantly reduced um, the uh, the proof is in the pudding uh, so until then it was more about my conviction then we were seeing the numbers and that was very favorable and only made me think that now instead of waiting for that equity to be generated i should be chasing the property which has already equity inbuilt and what i mean by that is finding the properties which are bargains so I started focusing on that strategy more than buying a piece of land and waiting for it to you know, generate that result for me. Yep. And so what do you mean when you say the property is a, is a bargain? Is it just uh, a bit of circumstance that there's a property for sale under market, there's just no buyers at the moment and eventually it will come back or there's upside potential that other people can't see which really should increase the value in real terms? What are we talking about these bargains? I'm actually talking about a combination of the two, which we just mentioned. So it has to be a property which is about to take off and at the same time, the area, uh, as in the location, which actually is about to take off with that kind of attributes, but then also finding that property, which is coming more of a more of a motivated sale from the selling side. Yep. So, so combining that actually is 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 the thing that I've actually always focused on. Well, I do want to dive a little bit more into it. Um, certainly, based on the fact that you went from. Essentially, nothing in Australia um, to a $5 million portfolio in seven years. I know there will be a lot of people listening thinking I'll have what uh, he's having. Um, Obviously, there's quite a lot of effort that's gone into that, but are there any key fundamentals that you can share that you think uh, listeners will be able to take away from? Sure, there are plenty. There are plenty. So key things I would say is that to have end goal in mind, like just don't buy a property for the sake of buying a property, thinking that is an alternate way of putting money aside instead of putting in the bank. Um, so don't really make property investing as a hobby, but rather think of it as a business. If if you really want to make that big or significant, I should say, uh, have a holistic approach. Think about it as a portfolio. Because the thing is, Mike, as you would appreciate that after buying couple of properties which is relatively easy for anyone with a with a PAYG salary check anyone can go and pick an address and get the bank to lend money for against it the yep. key the key behind it is to understand like when how we can go about getting the third and the fourth and the fifth property as well while we are buying the first and the second so what i mean is that i'm, I'm 
having an end goal in mind that okay what set of properties or what sort of portfolio we would like to build has to be a thought before we actually start doing it it's like yes you know as an analogy analogy like it's like if i have envisioned a tower of 12 stories i'm not going to put a first story straight away after really think through what the design is how deep the foundation should be and and i should not be regretting when nothing is happening when we are just on the design is design stage or when we are digging the foundation because what it means is that we, when we see the property next door and we see that there are already two stories and yet we are digging down yeah so it's more about having that vision having that kind of right team of of people who can assist and and taking it more as a business approach rather than just a property approach so so following your advice there we need to i guess basically figure out what is the end goal and that i guess could be something like a passive income of x amount of dollars and then from there it's building the foundations to grow the portfolio which i guess ties into structuring and how you're going to obtain the finance and that sort of thing uh, am i on the right track with with those and and what's what comes after that Yeah so so exactly right so the getting the structure getting the mindset uh getting that kind of team of accountants mortgage brokers and then or maybe even getting someone to buy the property as well or because it's it's a very specialized role now like anyone can do anything but when we have to grow it's it's more about making money when we are buying the property as we know we, we make money when we buy not really i mean time in the market is of course is the thing but we can also time our purchase as an entry point and finding the bargains in that those areas so it's, it has become a lot more specialized now and it needs a lot of effort like if sometimes if a property is on bargain as in it's just going below its value there sometimes there's a reason why it is like that yeah the challenge with the property market is it's not really very efficient it's not like a pricing of gold stock that the whole world knows what the price today is on yes. a daily basis compared to properties like nobody knows unless it's a it's a similar unit in the same apartment with the same attributes with the same orientation then we might say okay if unit a has sold for this much unit b is should be this much yeah we don't even know the circumstances of the buyer and the seller of the other property or other unit anyway so even those are not really comparable from that perspective like the price mm-hmm. really dictates anything out there price only dictates that the buyer was happy to pay that much amount of money that seller was ready to accept yep so, and that buyer may have been in a hurry or sick of looking houses and paid a little bit of a premium or got into some sort of bidding war so in that instance it's not a a reliable comparable it's interesting you sort of say that and contrast that to say gold where there could be millions of individual transactions on that price on that particular day it's a different sort of thing isn't it exactly right exactly right so and in financial invest, investing industry we talk about whether the market is efficient or not and when it is not efficient as in the case of property investing we have to be very mindful of the due diligence and uh, coming back to the point like of building a team either do the whole, all the hard work to get to the bottom of the valuation of a property or get someone to do it for you for a fee but getting that kind of conviction and confidence at the same time yeah 
Now that sort of begs the question, what did your work, background, experience, education contribute to your skill set and success as an investor when you are doing this research yourself? Yeah, so I think it's uh, multifold uh, from my side because um, uh, being an architect, I can evaluate the property, uh, its attributes, particularly its design efficiency and the appeal to the buyer because, as you know, buyer actually looks at the home not as the rooms as in they 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 envision themselves so it really is a function of their appeal to the to them so design really makes a lot of difference so architecture efficiency and uh, productivity of the property as in spaces so that is very much uh, kind of in my dna as an architect because i've done that as in, in terms of designing. Second thing I would say, like in terms of investing, where the, the focus has been on the research, like what I've done in my in investment career of 10 years in stock market and later on multi-asset portfolios, is that how do we go about research? Because at the end of the day, property investing is also about demand and supply. If we can if we can see where these factors are moving, we can kind of forecast like what the price would be in future as well. Because if we go the underlying factors like population growth, as an example, we can predict that demand would be changing. And of course, it depends on the other factors as well. Um, like what sort of jobs we are making, like we are getting there, what sort of demography would be willing to live there. So that research background, and then that to an investing where it's all about money. To me, people tend to think too much about returns, but somehow the risk element is undermined. So what I've learned in my career is that risk and returns are the two sides of the same coin. And we as a property investor or any investor get paid for the return, for the equivalent amount of return risk we are taking. So that begs the question that how we can go about increasing our return expectations while minimizing the risk. So that That's a, mindset altogether helps me in what I'm doing today. Yeah, it's a really interesting insight. I mean, it, it shows the, the difference in, in the discipline and the training from having a financial background about that risk-reward uh, ratio. We do to, uh, the, I guess the risk and the return. We do tend to talk quite a lot about the returns, the capital growth, um, the yields, but not so much the risk. I mean, the, the risk is really just confined to, okay, well, it's got a great re- yield, a great return, so it, it may not have as good a, a capital growth. So it's, it's interesting that you look at that as well. We could, um, another topic we could talk extensively on, but I wanted to dig down into the minutiae of perhaps some examples of deals that you've done where you talk about making the money on the way in. So areas that are going to boom, properties that are undervalued or have some upside. Can you give us an example of some of the properties uh, that you purchase that fit those sorts of descriptions? Sure. So I think I'll probably give an example of a property that I bought in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um we were looking at Western Sydney um, here, and uh, the whole thing was that it was very much a seller's market. The agents were probably very cheeky. All they were saying is that open home is only at this particular 
date and time on a Saturday, come over and on the way in, this is your offer document. Like, just give your best price that you can offer. And uh, the agents were like saying that the top three people who are putting the highest bid will get a call uh, to, to finalize the offer. So that was very much kind of a seller's market and real estate agents selling those properties were, were on top of their game. They were able to make sales very quickly uh, within one day, like 11 o'clock in the morning, we have seen the property, three o'clock, they were already discussing about the best price that somebody can take, uh, yeah. can pay for that. So in that market, there was a particular property uh, that I found was pretty much meeting my criteria of those attributes in terms of design and uh, the location. The same game over there, the property was listed as uh, offers close to 359000 And uh, we have to play a silent auction on that one. So looking at the attributes, look, knowing a lot more about Bresri Speak in my research when it was not really even in the media then, uh, in, a, in a way that it was later on after a few months, we, we were able to see the potential, the reason why it was going much cheaper than what the other properties in the vicinity were going for was because it has an issue with the foundation. So it was on a sinking soil or something like that. So so having an understanding what actually it takes to fix the property was first aspect. Having the team to go and visit those properties, um, ha having a more informed, or uh, I guess, in, like, decision around that like what pricing would actually make sense for us to buy we actually ended up in the silent auction i know the human psychology com comes in typically when when we know the properties are actually going more than seven eight ten percent of the asking price i was thinking on the side on the on the sides that okay if somebody's saying 360 somebody might be desperate might say 370 or 380 uh, my valuation was coming at about 405 or so that I was happy with because I knew that all it all it needed was work of about maybe three grand to fix the property. Right. So, because there were a couple of cracks as well because of the foundation. Like everyone was able to see the crack that there's a structural change, but nobody knew as such, I would think, like people who were bidding for it, that what it would take to fix it. All it needed was basically a wedge in the in the in the foundation. Which costed actually ended up costing me only six hundred dollars. <laughs> there you go. All right. So, um, so having that kind of knowledge, uh, I realized that okay, four four or five would be the maximum that I would be paying. But then I went with the psychology that okay, what other people might be thinking about it. So they might come up with three eighty as an example. So I said like, okay, no, I really want to beat that. So three eighty five. But then somebody smart enough might think the same way. So three eighty five. So maybe I should be not going for the round number. I should say mm. 386. So, so then I thought maybe someone is doing the same thing in 386 is his offer. So I ended up winning the property. And later on, when I got to know, like, I, I mean, when we were exchanging contracts and everything, and uh, he, interestingly, as in the selling agent, told me that I won the property by $110. Wow. So, so what was your final bid? My final bid was $386,110. <laughs> so exactly that the is... same thinking, and he was laughing at it himself and said that <laughs> this guy has to, has, has to get this property. 
that, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's commitment. Wow. Uh, 2018, the valuation came out to be 640, by the way. Wow. Without spending more than $600 on the property. So comparable properties next door that didn't have sinking foundations, what were they at? So my valuation was coming at about 420, 430 for them. Yeah, okay. So I would still not really pay all the way to the market pricing then because I'm the one taking the risk of of evaluating it wrong. What if it needs really 10, 15, 20 grand to fix it? So, yeah. And also money is coming out of my pocket when it comes to renovation. Yes. As compared to if it's a contract price, then I'm actually leveraging all of it or most of it from the bank. So that valuation... That was a result of obviously fixing the uh, the crack, the um, the foundations, and doing the renovation as well, and maybe a bit of time. No, so it actually literally took three days for someone to come in and put the wedge between the property and the uh, column. So the, the property was moving just because the the soil has shrunk a bit on a couple of columns as in peers, what what you call it. Yep. Um, and all it needed, basically just the wedge, as in the wooden wedge, uh, later on sealed with the concrete later on, um, which costed, like the idea was basically, if there's no movement, it will not, as in, there was a gap between the slab and the pier. Yeah. Uh, so it, because it was getting disbalanced, the whole floor, like when you walk in the property, it was moving. And that was actually giving lots of vibrations elsewhere in the walls and the cracks was coming out because of that. Yep. So once we made it stable and we ensured it later on, it's actually fixed, so no issues whatsoever. So yep. all we did was basically fill the filled those gaps as in the cracks so that they're not really visible per se. Like because it gives a psychological uh, barrier that why they are, I mean, even for the tenant, like they were not really very comfortable. Yes, yes. All right, so all it needed was $600 for that and then a uh, lick of paint um, uh, later on that we did um, while I was actually holidaying, by the way. <laughs> just, to, just to rub it in um, <laughs> and how successful you were there. That, I mean, that's fantastic. You you started your business Get Rare Properties with, with, with such personal success, obviously, with your own career, but being able to build that sort of portfolio in, in seven years, I, I'm assuming that, you know, having a job was not even necessarily important. Um, why did you want to start Get Rare Properties? Sure. So I've always been helping myself, first of all, and then my friends and family. The idea was that if I have a proper business like this, the structure I have been practicing now, I would be able to reach out to more people as in just by the virtue of running a business. So the whole idea was to A, reach out to more people with the service offerings that I'm able to serve now. And B, to have it more like a scale and time for myself as well, like because I can't really do two things together anyway. So that, that was the reason, like to reach out to more people, make, bring back to the reality that what is really going on if they don't really take action today and showing them that how, if we do the, if we make the decisions and act on it in a more measured way, what could be the end result? So the whole 
I took it as a challenge that, again, going back to the same congruence of my value system that we are here to enjoy life, serve other people as well, and pursue our passions. So I decided, like, on last year, I realized that my passion is to help them make money work for them. You know, like, they have been, I mean, people in general are working very hard to earn money, but sometimes they are not really sure where they can put that hard-earned money to work harder for them. So I took that as a personal challenge that the whole reason for me to be in the finance industry, you know, like when I went to uh, do full-time MBA, which was not really easy as well, by the way, like I had, I went to UNSW and then later on to Chicago um, while my wife was pregnant with our first child. So, so there were a lot of sacrifices out there. Yes, I have made it successfully, uh, $5 million portfolio in seven years. It's not fluke that I actually stopped at $5 million because that was a, the part of the plan. I actually did purchasing only until 2017 because I was following a very rigid investment strategy. I mean, people have seen that they sometimes overshoot their own expectations. For me, it was more about sticking to the whole original plan and and now making myself available to serve others so that they can do the same. I love it. And one way that um, you've been serving others is I understand you run some workshops to help download some of your expertise. Yes, exactly right. So my focus has been, Mike, is, is more about work, more about education. Like I really want people to be informed, like what they can do, even while pursuing their full-time nine-to-five job. But we have to have a plan of of retirement, whatever the definition of retirement is. It should not be just a default plan. It should be a plan which has been thought through and agreed upon. So just to talk about that, I actually run a workshop on a monthly basis, which is free of cost, delivered online, and where I talk about how we can use property investing as a way to achieve financial freedom, where I cover why, what, and how, of building a property portfolio. Beautiful. And how do people get in touch with you, Rasti, if they want to continue the conversation? Sure. So I offer free consultation. I got a website uh, by name of getrare.com.au. And anyone who would like to book a one-on-one consultation, which is absolutely free um, of any obligation, they can book my time in my calendar directly uh, by going to a web page there. So getrear.com.au forward slash consult. I'm very much available on email. Um, I'm very much out there on the social media, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. And uh, I recently started the community of Australian property investors and home buyers on Facebook as well as LinkedIn recently. So Beautiful. Yeah. Have to get along and check that out myself. Um Rasti, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to property investors, what would that be? Um, I would say, if, if you don't mind me sharing that, like I'm a very big fan of a book called Ditch Dad, Poor Dad. I'm pretty sure most of you have already listened or heard about it. So he yep. talked about cash flow quadrants in the book, whereby the left-hand side quadrants of employee and self-employed um, where we trade our money, time for money, how they should move to right-hand side quadrants of investors and business person. And 
my advice is that how quickly like we should be very mindful that how we can move from left hand side quadrants to right hand side quadrants so property investing from that perspective is a very good vehicle because it's not only can serve as an investment where our money can work harder for us but also when we are building our portfolio or building our business we can take it as an investment whereby um, mixing the two as a business and investment uh, it's it's it begs the question that how we are more strategic about it how how we can build the system and the processes build the team around it get the coaching around it to to build it uh, over there so to me always think the piece that i would say is that think of a property as a vehicle to build the portfolio which will serve you for the longer uh, term don't think of a property just as a way to put money aside beautiful i think you've been uh, extremely generous with your advice today rasti and certainly enjoyed the focus on the more of the the philosophical or the the simon cynic style questions of property investing so thank you very much for for joining me today it's been a real pleasure my pleasure thank you so much for for this opportunity right cheers thank you